Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's message, that it draws you closer to Jesus and helps you become more like him. The letter to Pergamum. Write to the angel of the church in Pergamum. Thus says the one who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. Yet you are holding on to my name and did not deny your faith in me. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death among you, where Satan lives. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to place a stumbling block in front of the Israelites, to eat meat sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. In the same way, you have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans, so repent, otherwise I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name, is inscribed that no one knows except the one who receives it. Praise be to God. So how do you know who you are? This is a question a lot of us wrestle with in our 20s or 30s or 40s. And maybe sometimes we, we circle back around to this a little bit later in life. And we wonder, like we look back on our lives because everything goes so quickly, right? We look back on our lives at the past decades or the past years and we go, wow, who was I? Like, what, what was I doing? I can look back now and I, I you know, I'm, I'm in my mid-30s, right? I can look back to my early 20s and still kind of wonder, who was that guy? Like, I think about some of the jerky things I did, some of the really just, I was not a terrible person, I don't think. But man, you know, the things that stand out in my mind from my early 20s are really the things that, that I'm not proud of. And if you're anything like me, when you look back on your life, all too often the things that, that crop up to the front of your memory are the things that you're least proud of. Now, I know I did a lot of good stuff, and I'm sure you all did a lot of good stuff in your earlier years, but those things tend to stay right at the forefront of our heads, and they tend to shade who we see ourselves as, both in our past and our present and our future. But, but the question of, of who am I is one that can dog us for our entire lives. It's something that that we desperately want answered. And sometimes we go to other people to answer it for us. Sometimes we look into ourselves and, and we don't like what we see there. And so we answer that question in the negative or, or we go to some other source to try and find out who we are. And I'm, I'm going to share with you a way to investigate who you are today that may not have occurred to you, but I think is backed up biblically. If you want to know who you are, don't listen to the words that you say. Don't listen to the things you tell other people that you believe. If you want to know who you really are, listen to the jokes you tell. Listen to the throwaway comments that you make. The things you don't actually have to think about, the things that just come out of your mouth, listen to those things. Because Jesus says, from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And the things that we don't have to speak, to think about, those are the raw things that are coming out of us. That's who we really are. If you want to know who you really are, look at what you do. Look at how you spend your money. Look at how you spend your time. Look at the things that you do, again, without thinking, just the natural pattern of your life. I'm convinced that a lot of us, 
want to believe we are who we say we are. We are who we want to be. We are the things that we proclaim and the things that we say. But all too often, the things that we proclaim are are contradicted by the ways that we live our lives, the ways that we spend our money, the way that we walk in life. This is why Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. Not you'll say, I love you. Not you'll say, I believe in you. Not you'll hold to some some intellectual idea about who Jesus is, but you will obey my commandments. Now, this isn't to say we can earn our way into his affection. We just talked about that, right? We come and we confess our sin because we know it's forgiven once and for all in Jesus Christ apart from what we can do. But once we have been brought into the family of Christ, Jesus calls us to obedience. And as he changes who we are internally, those changes are reflected externally. And so we can know, am I being made into a new person? Am I I becoming something new by investigating the way that we behave, the ways that we act? And this letter to the church in Pergamum is going to back that up. This letter to the church in Pergamum is going to say, look, you guys, you guys are saying good stuff. You're saying you believe the right stuff, but you got some people among you who are doing some things that directly contradict all of that. And it's time you guys worked on that. James chapter 2, verse 18. The Apostle James, the very brother of Jesus, says, someone's going to tell me, I'll tell you what I believe. You have works and I have faith. And I'll tell you what I believe. And James says, you tell me what you believe, that's fine. I'll show you what I believe by how I live, by what I do. This is from the very brother of Jesus. And so today we're going to see the church in Pergamum be defined, these Christians in Pergamum being defined by how they live. And how they're living is is quite contradictory so we, we investigate this church. The first thing we learn is that they're suffering. These folks in Pergamum are suffering. Now, as we've mentioned multiple times already, this is not a large empire-wide persecution of Christians in Rome, right? And this is not even a particularly violent persecution against Christians in Rome. This is like local pressure, getting Christians kicked out of synagogues, away from their communities and away from their social circles and maybe out of work. And so they're struggling financially, they're struggling socially, they're struggling civically. But here in Pergamum, something radical has happened. And here in Pergamum, we learn that this guy Antipas has been killed for his faith. And if martyrdom were common at the time, it wouldn't be a big deal that Antipas gets mentioned, but it is. Right? Jesus mentions him because this is unique. Like, this has not happened. And yet, here, you're living in the place where Antipas was killed because of his faith. And so Jesus commends this church and says, you're living right there where Antipas died for his faith, and you guys have still said you believe in me. Like, that's amazing! Jesus doesn't want to take away from this at all. He wants them to know, like, This is incredible that you are continuing, you are maintaining your faith, even in the face of this kind of persecution, where this guy has been killed because he believes in me. Moreover, Jesus says, you live where Satan's throne is. Now, I don't know where in the world you think Satan's throne resides today. It's surely not Denver, I don't think. Right? But, but these guys are living like right in the heart of opposition to the church. You see, Satan's name, the name Satan, the word Satan, primarily means opposer or opponent. Right? 
in the Bible, Satan's kind of a tricky name because it doesn't always refer to the devil. Right? In Job, there's a Satan who probably isn't actually the devil. He's like an angel of God whose job is to, to challenge the Lord on things. And so he's part of God's heavenly court. He's not like outside of it. He's not the devil. And so in the Old Testament, you've got these angels that are sometimes called the Satan. Jesus calls Peter, his, his secondhand man, the Satan. He's like, you're acting as an opposer to me. So just step back, Satan. Satan, step back, Peter. Jesus isn't calling him the devil. He's saying, you're opposing me. You're opposing God's will. And so you're acting in accord with Satan. But here in the letter to Pergamum, Satan means the devil. And, and the, the Pergamum seems to be the center of opposition to the church. Now, this is for a few reasons. There were two major cults in Pergamum, two major pagan cults in Pergamum. One was Zeus. Zeus Soter is the proper name, Zeus the Savior. Right? So there is this giant, giant temple to Zeus built on top of a mountain that you can see from all of Pergamum. So it is very prominent right up there on top of the mountain. And it is to Zeus the Savior, right? king of the gods, savior of humanity. And there's temple worship going on to Zeus all the time, 24-7, right? Temple worship up there. Then down below, there is this temple to the god Asclepius. This was like a healing cult, but it was also kind of a sexual cult. And it, it was a weird, man. If you've seen, if you've ever wondered like where the, the hospital sign with like the pole and the snake comes from, it's not from the Bible. People think that comes from like Moses putting the snake on the pole in numbers. That's not true. It's actually from the god Asclepius back in these Roman days, this Greek god Asclepius, who was the god of healing and the god of a few other things. And his sign was a serpent. Also engraved on the temple to Zeus, there are snakes engraved all around this thing. These are serpent cults, these are snake cults, and in Christian, in Christian thought, in Jewish thought, right, the snake is closely related to whom? To Satan, right? To the devil, to the opposer, to the one who tempted Adam and Eve in the garden. And so this Pergamum is here a home to these two major cults of Asclepius, the Savior, Asclepius Soter, and of Zeus Soter, Zeus the Savior. And Pergamum is also a center of emperor worship. It's a place where people are expected to worship the emperor. It's the center of governmental authority in Asia Minor. And so you've got these three major, major pagan religions, pagan cults that are centered in Pergamum. And this is where the church has grown up, right among the temple to Zeus, the temple to Asclepius, and the temple to the emperor. And almost everything you do in public society in this time and place and in this world is tied to one of those cults, particularly tied to the imperial cult. If you do any kind of like major civic activity, you're going to have to go through the emperor cult in order to do it. So the Christians are totally on the outs here. Like they've got nowhere. They've got no home. They can't hang out with the Zeus worshipers, and they can't hang out with the Asclepius worshipers, and they can't hang out with the emperor worshipers, and they can't hang out with the Jews anymore because the Jews have kicked them out and said, you're not really one of us anymore. And so they're lost. And add to all of that pressure, now Antipas has been killed. And you can imagine a whole bunch of these Christians, like if you and I were there, a whole bunch of these Christians would be like, I don't know about this thing. Like, can, uh, they, like, they killed him. I was kind of okay when I lost my job, but we still had each other. But now they're like murdering us. 
So what do we do? That's where these people live. And that's why Jesus says, I want to commend you for this. You live where Satan's throne is. You live right in the center of it all. One of your people has been killed and you are staying faithful to me. That's amazing. It is close to the heart of Jesus. Jesus loves and feels for his people. He understands and walks in their pain and struggle and suffering. I think every time Christians suffer in this world, Jesus remembers those wounds from the cross and those stripes on his back and those thorns on his head. And he remembers the great suffering and he sympathizes with us in all of our pain and weakness. And here Jesus in Pergamum is saying, I feel you. I know you. I know where you live. I know where you dwell. I know the pain you've struggled through. And I know what it must be like to see your brother Antipas killed for this and the doubt that must reside in your mind and your heart because of it. And I honor you for staying faithful to me. The king of the universe, the king of all things, Jesus Soter, Jesus the Savior, is saying to his church, I honor you for your faithfulness. Never forget that. Never forget that when we suffer as followers of Jesus, our King, our Master, our Savior is right there with us, honoring us through it all as we honor Him. Never forget to hold to that. No matter what struggle you're dealing with, no matter what pressure or pain is coming at you, no matter what community you feel like you're excluded from because of your faith in Jesus, Our master is with you. Our king is there walking with you. And so they're suffering. But, Jesus says, but despite your suffering, there's some things that need to be worked on. There's some issues here that we've got to get to the bottom of. Because yes, you're living in this pagan center. You're living in this place where people are worshiping all kinds of other gods and things. And you're staying faithful to me, but the pressure is getting to you. And that's what Jesus is essentially saying in these coming verses, where he, where he compares their situation to the situation of Israel with Balaam. Now, if you've heard the name Balaam, it's probably because you know the story of the donkey talking to the guy, right? The, the back in the Old Testament. But most of us, that's all we really know. Like Balaam was this dude riding a donkey, and for some reason, an angel stands in the way of the donkey and then makes the donkey talk when Balaam beats it. And that's kind of it. Like, I remember for years, I grew I heard this story in Sunday school. I, I had read it in my children's Bibles, but I didn't have any clue. Why? Why is the donkey opposing Balaam? Like, why can't Balaam go where he wants to go? What's the big problem here? And then I read it, and this story is crazy. So, uh, the children of Israel have escaped Egypt, right? God has led them out of Egypt under Moses, and they're traveling through trying to get to the promised land. That's when this happens. And as they're traveling through, they're finding all these other peoples who already live in the kind of land that they're walking through. And they're walking through the land of Moab. And in the land of Moab, there's a king named Balak, and there's this prophet named Balaam. And Balaam is no, he's a, he's a, he's not a, a, children of Israel. He's not a follower of Yahweh, but Balaam's known as a guy whose blessings and curses come true. So Balak's like, you know, these Israelite people, they're kind of pesky, but I don't want to go to war with them. I don't really want to risk 
because it would mean major losses on both sides, and Balak doesn't want to really lose his army or his people. And these Israelites, they look pretty tough. So I don't really want to go to war with them. So Balak's like, I'm going to call on Balaam, and I'm going to have him curse these people so that they won't give me any trouble. And so Balaam comes, and that's when the donkey thing happens. Balaam's on his way on his donkey to see Balak, and the angel of the Lord stands in front of the donkey and is like, you can't go any further. And Balaam gets angry and beats the donkey, and then the angel of the Lord makes the donkey talk and say, you can't go there. Well, Balaam still ends up going there and meeting with this King Balak. And Balaam warns Balak, look, I'm not going to be able to curse these people. Their God won't let me curse them. I've already worked this out, and it's just not going to happen. And Balak's, no, no, go ahead, please, just, just curse them. And so Balaam stands up, and he goes to curse the people. They're like, right, you know, standing up, he's overlooking the armies of Israel. He raises his arm, and he's like, blessings be upon you. And Balak's like, well, no, that's not what I, that's not what I told you to do. And Balaam's like, I told you, I, it won't work. Two more times this happens. So three times Balaam goes to curse the people of God, each time warning Balak, it's not going to work. Balaam raises his arms. Okay, fine. Blessings be upon you, Israel. And Balak's like, come on, man. So finally they give up. After multiple blessings from Balaam over the people of God, Balak gives up. But not before Balaam can give him some advice. So Balaam, back in chapter 22, had said to Balak, look, I'm not going to be able to curse them. But if you really want them to fail, here's what you do. You get all the women of Moab, all the attractive young ladies of Moab, to go out into the camps of Israel and seduce the Israelite guys. And they will fall in love with them and marry them. And then they'll start to follow your gods and their God will curse them. So Balaam's like, I can't curse them, but their God will curse them if you just trick them into following your gods. And so finally, after all these attempts at blessing and, and every, at cursing and all of it going wrong, Balak does what Balaam suggested. And so we read in Numbers chapter 25 that the Israelites are camped out below and the people of Moab come and infiltrate the camp. And exactly what Balaam predicted happen, would, would happen, happened. Right? The people go in, the men of Israel are attracted to the women of Moab and they begin to marry with them and they begin to follow false gods and they fall apart. And God curses his own people because of the advice of Balaam. So that's what happens back in Numbers chapters 22 to 25. That's what is being referred to here in this letter to Pergamum. When Jesus says to them, you have some here who, are, who hold to the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to place a stumbling block in front of the Israelites to eat meat sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Now you have to understand the context of Numbers 22 to 25 to really get what he's getting at here because he's not just talking about sex outside of marriage. He's not just talking about general sexual immorality. He's not even talking about specifically eating meat sacrificed to idols. Because if you read 1 Corinthians where the Apostle Paul is addressing this very issue, he'll say, an idol is nothing. Sure, you can eat the meat sacrificed to it as long as it doesn't mean anything to you. But if you feel like you're worshiping a false god, then don't eat the meat. But it's really on your conscience. right? So if you read that and then you read this, you're like, hold up, John's contradicting Paul. But what you have to know is that in this context, eating meat sacrificed to idols really means worshiping the false god, worshiping that idol, worshiping the, the false deity. And so these, these Christians have people among them who have come in and kind of infiltrated the Christian church, infiltrated their community, and who are leading them into 
false worship, into pagan idolatry, into worship of Zeus or Asclepius or any of the other Roman deities, or to the emperor himself. And so the Christians, they're, they're being led astray. And then he says, you also have some who, who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, we talked about this when we talked about Ephesus. Like, we don't know exactly what the Nicolaitans means. We, we don't know exactly what their false teaching is. But their name means victory. And, and the best we can tell from, from this letter and from other you know, snippets that we get is that the Nicolaitans were like, look, Jesus has forgiven you of everything, so whatever you do in this life, it's okay. Like, God won't hold it against you. As long as your spirit is pure, then your flesh can do what it wants. And that's kind of okay. This is what we call, this is what the, the $10 theological word for this is antinomianism. Anti-law, no law. No rules, no restrictions. What my body does doesn't matter because it's my soul that's important. And I know a lot of evangelical Christians who are in that camp right today. I know a lot of followers, people who are claimed to be followers of Jesus who are in that camp right now. Like, it's your soul that matters. So what you do, eh, God will forgive. But as long as your soul is pure, as long as you've prayed the right prayer, as long as you've gone through the right steps, as long as you've, you've come to church at the right times and done the right stuff, then your soul will be pure and your body, well, God will forgive you because Jesus has already forgiven all that. And that seems to be what the error of the Nicolaitans is. So when you combine that kind of antinomianism, that kind of no law, whatever I do goes, and I'm forgiven for everything, with the temptation to follow these pagan gods, to worship these pagan gods, and to engage in this kind of sexual immorality, and, and to do the things of society so that you're not on the outs, so that you're not excluded from stuff, but you can still engage with the world, that's a toxic pairing. Right? That, that is a toxic mashup where what I do doesn't really matter because it's the purity of my soul that's important. Therefore, I can do whatever is asked of me in society so that I can fit in and still claim to be a follower of Jesus. And Jesus is saying, that doesn't work. You cannot praise me with your lips and deny me with your body. You cannot worship me with your heart and deny me with your actions. You can't worship this God and be faithful to me, says Jesus. That's what's going on in that church. What kind, of, what kind of compromises have we been tempted to make to fit in with our world? Well, what kind of compromises have you been tempted to make to fit in with the people you want to fit in with? To not be excluded. To not be put out. What kind of compromises have we had to make to get ahead in our jobs or in our careers? that really Jesus would look at and go, I'm not sure about that. I don't, I don't know if that's following me. What kind of compromises have we had to make? There are a lot of us who are willing to do whatever it takes to get ahead. A lot of Christians, self-proclaimed followers of Jesus, who when push comes to shove and it means my career is on the line or my society is on the line or these friendships are on the line, are willing to compromise. And kind of go this way, because after all, Jesus has forgiven me all my sin. After all, I'm going to be okay. He'll forgive me. With Jesus, it's easier to ask forgiveness than permission, because he's already forgiven me. So therefore, I can do what I need to do to get ahead. But Jesus doesn't want compromise. Jesus wants our whole hearts. 
He wants everything that we are. Jesus wants every part of us. And he promises that if we actually give ourselves to him, our life will be better. But we don't trust that. We don't hold to that. We we don't believe that Jesus can lead us into better places than we can take ourselves if it means cutting off this path. If if it means that that the plan that I have for myself is going to lead me into prosperity and into success, if it means cutting that off for the sake of Jesus, well, I don't trust him enough. I can see this path. I can see where it leads. I can't see where you're leading, Jesus. And so I'll go this way, and you'll forgive me. And Jesus goes, I don't, I don't want that. I don't want that. And lest we think that this is just an individual problem, lest we think that this is just an issue of our own hearts and our own souls and my own sinfulness and my own sinlessness, then Jesus is clear to this church in Pergamum in verse 16. So repent! Otherwise, I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Now, this is a weird verse because he's mixing audiences here. The command to repent is not just to the people who have given in to idol worship. The command to repent is not just to the compromisers. It's to the entire church. It's to everybody gathered. And Jesus says, look, if y'all don't repent... If y'all don't repent together, then I will come and war against the compromisers with the sword of my mouth. I will bring judgment upon this group within your church if the whole church doesn't repent. Church, this is what's hard in an American individualized society. We hold responsibility for one another. We are a family A family knit together by the blood of Jesus Christ called to communal righteousness. Called to follow Him together. We are not in this alone. Your sin affects me and my sin affects you in this family. We are called to be in one another's lives, to know one another well enough to be able to call one another out in our sin. That's why God's put us together. That's why it's not enough for us to just sit at home and pray and read our Bible and be good. That's why he's called us into the ecclesia, the gathering of God's people, the koinonia, the fellowship of Christ. He's called us into this place so that we can be accountable to him and to one another. I am accountable to you. You are accountable to me and we are accountable to each other in this church. And when we have a portion of our people who are failing in some significant way, it is the responsibility of the church to step into that and say, hey, I think you're going wrong here. Hey, I think you've stepped off the path. And Jesus calls us all to repent together. Not just those who are in error, but those who have allowed the error. Those who haven't called out the error. It is our responsibility to repent as a community. That's why we do the communal confession at the beginning of the service. That's why we worship together. That's why it's so important that we be here together. We are called to repent together. And then to those who do repent, both to those who are in error and those who have allowed the error, Jesus makes this final promise. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, 
I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone. And on the stone, a new name is inscribed that no one knows except the one who receives it. Jesus is saying, look, if you repent and you stay faithful to me and you correct this error, then to you I will give the hidden manna and I'll give a white stone with a new name. Now, I know for those of us reading that, we're like, okay. (laughs) I don't know what that means, right? So the manna, if you remember back in the Exodus, right, when at the same time that, um, that Balaam is, is tempting the people of God, the Israelites around, they're traveling through the wilderness. And as they're traveling through the desert and the wilderness, they're being fed by supernatural food. Right? Every morning they get up, they come outside, and there's this white stuff all over the ground. And it's called manna. Now, the funny thing is, in Hebrew, the word manna means, what is it? Ma-na. What is it? Because they didn't have a name for it. They didn't know what it was. And so they walk out one morning. They're like, what's that? That's a good name for it. And they start collecting it. And that's what they ate every day was the manna. Now, when they entered into the promised land, they had saved some of the manna. God had commanded them to save some of the manna, not even before they entered the promised land, when they make the Ark of the Covenant that they're carrying around. The Ark of the Covenant that is the symbol of God's presence. They're carrying this around with them in the desert. And God says, take some of that manna and put it in the Ark of the Covenant to save forever as a testament to what I've done for you, as a testimony to how I've provided for you. Now, the Ark of the Covenant stays with the people of God wherever they go as they're wandering around, and eventually they enter the Promised Land. And then when they enter the Promised Land, they build a tabernacle, and later they build a temple, and always the center of the place of worship, the center of the temple, was the Ark of the Covenant. That's where God's presence was. And so the manna is in the Ark of the Covenant. Well, something crazy happens in the early 500s BC. The Babylonians come and they besiege Jerusalem and they're all stuck around Jerusalem. And the priests in the temple are like, we got to get rid of the ark because the Babylonians are going to overtake us and we can't have them stealing the ark. Because in their minds, if the Babylonians take the ark, they get God's presence and they get God's power and they can't have that. So they got to get rid of the ark. So they take the ark away and we don't know where. Tradition says it went to Ethiopia. But nobody really knows where the Ark of the Covenant is. So in the f- almost 600 years before Jesus shows up on the scene, a little over 600 years before Jesus shows up on the scene, the Ark of the Covenant's missing. Nobody knows where it is. And it's got the manna inside, and it's got the tablets with the Ten Commandments on it, and it's got the rod of Aaron, the first priest, and it's got all kinds of stuff inside of it. All this very special stuff. And so over the 600 years before Jesus comes, this tradition builds up that when Messiah comes, he's going to bring the Ark with him. When Messiah comes, he's going to bring the ark and all of its stuff, all the special stuff of the people of God is going to come with Messiah. And then Jesus shows up on the scene. And Jesus starts talking about this stuff. And one day we're going to go through the contents of the Ark of the Covenant and see how Jesus fulfills them all. But one specific place in John chapter 6, Jesus is talking to some leaders of the people. And he says, I'm the manna from heaven. I'm the manna you've been looking for. I'm the hidden manna. I am the one who will feed you. I'm the one who will sustain you. You don't need to be looking for that hidden manna that went to Ethiopia or wherever the ark is because here I am. And so when Jesus says to the church in Pergamum, I will give you some of the hidden manna. If you conquer, if you repent, if you stay faithful to me, I will give you the hidden manna. He's talking about himself. I will give you my presence. I will be with you. I will walk with you. You don't have to worry if you are faithful to me and you conquer because I will be with you, sustaining you and leading you. You don't have to worry about your social contacts. You don't have to worry about getting ahead in the world. You don't have to worry about making compromises in order to to be where you want to be or go where you want to go. I will sustain you. 
the hidden manna will be with you. So don't worry. I've got you. I've got your back. And he says, in addition to the hidden manna, I'm going to give you a white stone. Now, this is a lot more complicated. We, don't, we just don't know what a white stone means. There are so many different things it could mean, right? A white stone could be an invitation to a party, right? In this day and age, if you were invited to a party, you might be given a white stone, and that white stone would give you access to the party. It acted as your token, your invitation, and you would present it when you got to the house or to wherever you were going, and they would say, okay, yeah, you got your white stone, good, come on in. White stones were also used in judgments. White and black stones would be used. And so if there's a trial going on or there's someone is being judged for something, then the jurors would use white and black stones to cast their vote for this person's innocence or guilt. And so a white stone can mean innocence. It can mean purity. But we don't have any example of a white stone inscribed with a name on it. Like That's just something different. Like We don't even know what that means. So really... Honestly, I think as I look at this and I, and I look at the, the day and age in which it was written, like, I just think it means all those things. Hey, it's just all that stuff, right? When, when Jesus says, I'm going to give you a white stone, what he's saying is, I'm going to give you admission into my kingdom. I'm going to give you admission to my party, to my wedding feast. If you remember back in Matthew, Jesus told this parable of God throwing a party, the Son of Man throwing a party, and everybody was invited. And so what Jesus is saying here is, you're invited to my party. Right? If you conquer, if you're faithful to me, you're going to be invited into my kingdom, into my party. You're going to be welcomed in, and you're going to be declared innocent, declared pure. I'm going to declare you totally innocent before me. You don't have to worry about the compromises you might have made. You don't have to worry about the sin you might have committed. You don't have to worry about the idolatry or the pagan worship. You don't have to worry about any of that, because if you're faithful to me, I will give you this white stone, and it will be your purity. It will be your sinlessness. It will be your forgiveness. It'll be the sign that I have forgiven you and have welcomed you in. And not only that, it's going to have a new name written on it. You remember back in the Old Testament, God has always given people new names. right? In, in, in the Old Testament, your name was your destiny. And a lot of people's names would reflect not where they wanted to go. They weren't aspirational. They reflected the circumstances into which they were born. And so your name might be Weepy. And so you live your life Weepy and Mopey because my name's Weepy. Therefore, I must be Weepy. Your, your name might mean poor. And so you're going to be poor forever because that's the name that you were given. So the circumstances of your birth that you get named by ends up being your destiny. It ends up being the thing that, that defines who you are. And that's why God changes names. When God changes a name, he's not just changing the moniker you go by. He's changing the course of your life. He is changing your destiny. And the most famous example of this is a guy named Jacob. Jacob, who is born a twin to Esau, and he goes to steal his brother's birthright. Esau was born a second before Jacob. So he's the firstborn. He gets all the inheritance. And Jacob's like, no, nah, I'm going to trick my dad out of Esau's inheritance. And so Jacob, the trickster, Jacob, the thief, steals his brother's birthright and gets all the inheritance of the older brother, even though Jacob doesn't deserve it. And Jacob does a bunch of, I mean, he does a bunch of bad stuff, right? Jacob's always tricking people. He's always messing with people. He's, he's trying to get ahead any way he possibly can until one night when he's fleeing his brother Esau, because his brother Esau's finally had enough of Jacob. He's finally had enough of this trickster. He's going to go beat him down. Jake, Esau is coming after Jacob with all of his men. And in the middle of the night, Jacob has sent his family ahead. Jacob's laying down on the ground. He meets the angel of the Lord. 
He meets Jesus before Jesus is in the flesh, before he's born, right? He meets the second person of the Trinity. He meets God, and he wrestles with him all night long. And at the end of that, the angel of the Lord touches Jacob's hip, puts it out of socket, and he says, I'm going to name you Israel, one who wrestles with God. And that would become the destiny not only of Jacob, but of all of Jacob's children, of the people of Israel. They would be the people who wrestled with God and with whom God wrestled. They would be the people that God would deal with on the earth to show who he is. It was the change of name that changed Jacob's entire outlook on life, changed his entire destiny and the destiny of all the generations that would come after him. This is what Jesus promises here to the one who conquers. To the one who repents, to the one who's faithful to him, I will give the hidden manna, I will sustain you, I will be with you, I will make sure that you are protected and cared for and that you have all that you need. I will give you the invitation into my kingdom that declares your purity and your forgiveness and on it will be a new name that will declare for you a new destiny, a new hope, a new home. Are you happy with the direction of your life? Are you happy with the way things are going right now? Have you really submitted everything to God and allowed him to direct your path? Or are you living in your old name? Are you trying to hold tight to your old name, to that identity you were born into, to the expectations of the world, to the ambition that you feel? Are you trying to bow to the expectations of society to be successful in their eyes? Are you living into the name you were given at birth? Or are you living into the destiny that Jesus has given you? Are you walking into the name that God is calling you? Are you who God says you are, or are you trying to be who you want to be? Are you trying to be who you call yourself, or who the world calls you, or who your family calls you, or do you want to be who God calls you? The path that he has laid out before us is far better than the path we would choose for ourselves. The path that he has laid out for us means a far more glorious future than the path we could walk ourselves. Every path we walk our own, every time we try to wrestle control from God and walk our own way and plot our own course, we are headed only to destruction. There is no eternal future, no eternal hope in the path that we would choose for ourselves. Our eternal hope lies only in the destiny that Jesus has given us, only in the name that he can give us only in the path that he would lay out for us. Jesus says, to the one who conquers, I will give a new destiny, a new name, a new identity, and it will be truer to who you are than any path you could choose for yourself because Jesus knows you better than you know yourself. God knows us and knows who he called us to be and who he made us to be far better than we do ourselves. And we are foolish if we choose not to live into what he calls us, not to walk in the name that he calls us. So today, has God called you by a new name? Has Jesus called you by a new name? Have you accepted it and owned it as your own? Has he given you that white stone? Do you rely on the manna that only Jesus can provide, on the sustenance and the food that only he can give? Today is the day. Today is the day to repent and to, to turn and to say, yes, Lord, I want that manna. Yes, Lord, I want the stone. Yes, Lord, I want the name. I want the new direction. I want the destiny. I want the way you're calling me. I want your life for me. 
Today is the day to submit and surrender ourselves to our God and to say, yes, I, I will take the name that you call me. I will take the stone that you give. I will live dependent on the manna that you provide, not on the bread I provide with my own hands. I am yours, Lord. Today I am yours. Call me by that new name. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I am yours. Lord God, we are yours. We are your people. We want to own the name that you've called us by. We want to live into the destiny that you are laying before us. We want to give ourselves entirely and wholly to you, Jesus. Today we repent. Today, Lord, I lay down my sin. I want nothing more to do with it. I don't want to turn from you anymore. I don't want to order my own steps, God. I want you to have my life. Today, Lord, turn me around. Away from sin and toward your glory. Lord Jesus, call me by that name. Give me that white stone and be my sustenance. Be my provision. Lord Jesus, I give you everything today. Take it as your own. Live through me to the glory of your name and for the good of my community. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Thanks for tuning into the podcast this week. For more information on Christ Community Church in Southeast Denver, visit ChristCommunityDenver.org.